don't know if you've noticed, but it's a little bit quieter right here in this transition time. Uh, today is the first day that our children are downstairs for the whole hour. So uh, instead of being... Hey, <laughs> Stephen. Okay, parents can do that. Parents can do that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so... J- yeah, so Jacob and his team have uh, just a full hour of worship and, and just wonderful um, learning uh, in store for the kids now. So that's going to be sort of a new dynamic for us with the kids down from the very beginning. Uh, we're going to be uh, continuing our body language series uh, this morning. You guys enjoying this? Enjoying your small groups that are meeting during the week? I hope so. Uh, those of you who are involved in that. Um, we're going to continue again in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today, chapter 5. So go ahead, if you've got your Bibles with you, turn there with me now. Put your finger on chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians or go there in, on your, uh, your tablet or your phone in your Bible there and uh, follow along with us this morning. Just fair warning, um, chapter 5 in 1 Corinthians uh, is what we call inside baseball. Okay, um, it is it is for the church, and um, and really all about uh, what's happening inside the church. So just be aware of that as we move through um, this passage. Uh, for churches that follow the liturgical calendar, uh, the season of Lent began this week uh, with Ash Wednesday. Uh, initiating 40 days of prayer. How many of you saw folks at the office or at the store, what have you, with the ash on their forehead? Yeah. Um, you didn't You didn't go up and tell them they had a smudge or anything, did you? Um, it, you before I knew what that was all about, you know, I would be that guy. Um, but uh, Ash Wednesday initiates 40 days of, of prayer and fasting and really repentance um, prior to, to Easter. And uh, as I was researching it this week, the word Lent uh, actually comes from a word originally that means the lengthening of days or springtime. And so I'm all about Lent right now. I'm ready for spring uh, to come our way. Um, Even though we don't strictly follow the liturgical calendar uh, here at Tapestry, many of you I know come out of traditions uh, that do. And uh, many of you give up something for Lent. Does anybody kind of give something up for Lent as a sacrifice? Laura, Kim, Colin, Adrian, several of you. Giving up something just as a, as, as a release, if you will, to focus on the Lord during these 40 days. Um, it might be some sort of food. That's kind of a popular one, you know. Um, it may be a true fast. Um, it may be a social media fast. I know several people who uh, are doing a social media fast. It could be a smartphone fast. I'm actually trying to do a smartphone fast. I'm trying to use my phone just for necessities and not for the billions of other things that you can kind of get lost uh, in it. Some people do a season of committed prayer or scripture reading um, maybe in the place of their, their Netflix watching, you, you know, you kind of trade those two things out. Um, whatever it is, the goal is to turn your attention away from yourself and on to Jesus as we look toward Easter, his death, burial, and resurrection. Lent is essentially kind of an advent for Easter. 
um, with a focus on self-denial and the removal of sin from our lives. And so it is appropriate then that we move into chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians this week. Uh, The first four chapters, if you've been with us, uh, were focused primarily on division in the church. The church getting at odds with one another caused by the rating and the ranking of different leaders in the church. I follow Paul. I follow Apollos. I follow Cephas. And the church was fracturing over following these different leaders. They were elevating the men above the message. And Paul now turns his attention in chapter 5. Remember, he's writing this letter from Ephesus to the church that he had founded three years earlier in Corinth. And so now he turns his attention to blatant sin that is happening in the Corinthian church that he has heard about from other folks in the church and that other people in the church have written to him and kind of clued him in on. Um, And so he's addressing it here because that sin is evidently being flaunted by the sinner and it's being celebrated by the saints in the church. And so if you look at at, at chapter 5, 1 Corinthians Verse 1, Paul says this. He says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among the pagans. He says, A man has his father's wife. Huh? That's in the Bible? And you're proud of it. What is going on here? Translation, there is a man in the church who's sleeping with his stepmother. Okay, so it's his stepmother. Um, Never. It kind of goes without being, never a good idea. Even Roman law at the time, secular law, forbade such an act. And yet it was happening right there in the Corinthian church. And they were celebrating it. So the question is, and what we want to talk about this morning, is this. How does the church respond to such blatant sin in the camp? Should the church respond to the... It's a touchy stuff. It's inside baseball right here. How do we stand against that type of thing as the church and in the church without diminishing either the holiness of God or the grace and mercy of God, without diminishing the truth that Jesus came with and the grace that Jesus came with. How do we respond to it? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. We've looked in detail thus far at how the Corinthian church was allowing the culture around it to have a greater impact on the church than the cross was having on the church. And in chapter 5, we see clearly where the slippery slope of cultural compromise can take the church. The ancient Greeks used to say that people had been Corinthianized. 
This was a saying that they, people had been Corinthianized if they were involved in deviant, sexual, or immoral behavior. And so these new believers, remember this is the culture they're coming out of just three years earlier. Some of them maybe just three weeks earlier. These new believers in this church had grown up right in the middle of this immoral mess. And as a result, they were desensitized to it. Even after they became Christians, this kind of behavior wasn't registering as that big of a deal. That sound familiar at all? What do we learn from that? We learn that being desensitized ultimately leads to being demoralized. We're in the midst of it, have been, for 2,000 years. It's a slippery slope. I read an article, an interesting article in Christianity Today uh, two weeks ago that illustrates this principle perfectly in the church today. Bear with me as I read what the, uh, the author writes here. <clears throat> he said this, he said, A pastor recently told me about a couple in his church he said, we'll call them Tyler and Amanda. I've changed the name. So the pastor's contacting this writer. He's talking to him. He's telling him about Tyler and Amanda, fictitious names in his church, but real people. They were high school sweethearts, raised in Christians, Christian homes. They lived in the Bible Belt. After getting married, they seemed to be living the American dream. They had a house. They both had good jobs. They had two kids. And then John, a friend of Tyler's, the husband, began living with their family. He had fallen on some hard times. Amanda, imagine this, developed a close relationship with John, but their flirtation soon developed into something more, and John and Amanda proposed to Tyler, the husband, that they begin exploring something called polyamory. Has anybody heard of this term, polyamory, poly, many, Amory loves that they began exploring this new lifestyle known as not polygamy, where you got multiple, you know, uh, uh, spouses, but polyamory, where you just have multiple loves. It, 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 this was new to me. Um, probably a good thing. With Amanda adding John as a significant other to their relationship. They also encouraged Tyler, the husband, to develop a relationship with another woman that he'd met in the gym. I mean, it's only fair. And he agreed. This is a real deal. I'm not making this up. When Tyler and Amanda came out as polyamorous, their parents were shocked. That'll do it. What seemed like a fringe practice in the sexual revolution had now settled and is now settling into middle America. Making the situation even more complex, Tyler and Amanda, through the, her, her parents' prodding, sought counseling from a Christian counselor who advocated the practice. <laughs> Slippery slope. Recent studies show that as many as 5% of Americans are currently living in this type of lifestyle. That's the same percentage as the LGBT community, okay? 
research also shows that 25% of churchgoers today don't have a problem with it. That's the slippery slope of cultural compromise. Desensitization. Think about your own life. I, I mean, I, I, I'm guilty. I mean, think about what we allow to come into our lives, what we funnel into our homes, you know, what we stream into our lives, all these different things. Think about that. Desensitization leads to demoralization. The Corinthian church was taking the freedom they possessed in Christ, and this is what Paul is addressing here, and they were turning it into a license to sin. They were taking the grace of God and using it as a pass for pleasure. The more things change, the more they stay the same. But this passage... (laughs) is less about the sin of this immoral man. Paul's not as much focused on him. It's more about the weakness of an immoral church. That's Paul's greater concern, and that needs to be our greater concern. Evidently, this guy was getting high fives and slaps on the back in the Corinthian church locker room. Paul says, you've got blatant sin in the church, and some of you, you're proud of it. You're celebrating it. Look at us. We're free. We're a progressive church. But when it comes to the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ, the acceptance of clear, blatant sin is never Progress. Entire denominations are splitting today over this very issue. Verse 2. Paul says, and you're proud of it, church. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Wait a minute, Phil, what's he... What? He said, throw him out of the church? Uh, Yeah. Even though I'm not physically present, Paul said, I'm with you in spirit. He said, I'm making this clear. This is what we need to do. Even if if, if I'm not there, this, this is how it needs to go. He says, and I have already passed judgment. He's passing judgment? He's judging? I have already passed judgment on the one who did this just as if I were present. Paul goes on to tell us here how the church should respond, essentially, to blatant sin in the camps. Known as church discipline. How many of you have ever heard of church discipline? How many of you have ever seen church discipline enacted in your church? One, two, three, five people. I'm one of them, six. Never want to do it. It, 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 it. From a pastoral perspective, from a leadership perspective in the church, it is the most heartbreaking and challenging thing that we can possibly do as, as the church. It is rarely seen today. 
because the response to it by the church as a whole is so negative. The who are we to judge mentality. You live your life, I'll live my life. Even in the church carries the day over the removal of unrepentant sin in the church. Hey, wait, that's not my place to judge. What did Paul just say? He's judging that situation in the church. But the Scripture is clear. It's crystal clear on this. And there are a few principles that rise to the surface in this text that I want to share with you this morning. The first of which is this. God is calling the church... And each of us as individual believers to take sin seriously. The word itself is stiff-armed in culture today. The word itself is stiff-armed oftentimes even in the church today. Sin, from, from the, the, the definition of sin literally It's an old archery term. It means to miss the mark. In other words, we, as we come into this world, we are missing the mark, separated from God. We don't hit the target of His holiness. And we need some help. And that help is Christ. And so we, Paul is saying, the church and each individual believer needs to take sin Seriously, to understand that it was sin, hear me, that necessitated the cross. Let that sink in for a minute. Your sin, my sin, us missing the mark of God's holiness is what necessitated the cross and caused the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul goes on in verse 4 to say, When you're assembled in the name of our Lord, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord is present, hand this guy over to Satan. What if I said that standing right here? Seriously. Likely not well received. I hope I never have to. I might change the wording a little bit, Paul. I don't know. But in other words, what Paul's saying is, put this guy out of the church. I mean, he is sleeping with his stepmother. And, 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 and he's celebrating that. Are we going to... Is that okay? He says, put him out of the church. Paul knows if this is left unaddressed, that this disorder... In the church, this disease, if you will, in the church is going to infect the whole body. It's going to just spread. Let me ask you something. How would you respond if we had to do this here at Tapestry? The challenge of preaching through an entire book verse by verse is I can't preach around things. I can't just pick the easy stuff and stuff I'm all into and just throw it out there and make you feel good all the time. How would you respond, honestly, in this very case if we had to do this here at Tapestry? I mean, would it be, hey, come on, Phil, man, who are we to judge? How seriously do you take sin? How seriously do I take sin? In your own life and as a follower of Jesus Christ, 
in his church. Paul's challenge here is to take sin seriously, but to respond redemptively. To respond with a heart of love. So that the sinful nature, he says in verse 5, what's driving this thing, in other words, okay, for him to do this, so that that may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So Paul has a redemptive motive in doing this. His goal here is not to just cut ties and banish this guy. It's to put him in a position, hear me, to feel the full weight and consequence of his sin. So he'll repent. (laughs) It'll be too much for him. And that he'll be restored into his relationship with the Lord. It's tough love. How many of you have ever had to Exercise some tough love at home, either with your kids, uh, with a spouse, with uh, a sibling. Uh, anyway, I've had to do that I, it, with not not my immediate family, but but with with siblings and that kind of thing. It is it that is one of the hardest things to do to exercise tough love. I'm talking about boundary drawing, line drawing. Just You're just going to have to feel the full effect of what you're doing, and I, I can't help you anymore. It's one of the hardest things to do. And that's exactly what Paul is doing here. It's tough love. Tough love purposefully pushes people to the end of themselves because that's where God is. And if they're unwilling to surrender in that place, that's their decision. And it doesn't end well. I can testify to that. It's hard to watch and it's even harder to enact. It's even harder to put into place and to keep into place. Because our hearts are just broken when we watch it. It's one of the most difficult things that we can do to draw that hard line with a loved one. But sometimes that's the only thing we can do that will facilitate change. Some of you need to do that in in a relationship that you've got right now. You just need to draw a hard line. It's time to stop enabling this behavior. To call it what it is. And to allow that individual to feel the full weight of their sin. And the rest is up to them. That's what Paul's doing. What appears to be a very harsh treatment on the surface is in fact the most loving and redemptive thing the church could do in this situation. Why? Because repentance... Repent, this word metanoia, it it, it literally means a change of direction. We are walking away from God, we repent, and we turn 180, and we turn and we acknowledge our sin, and we begin walking toward God. Repentance is required, required for restoration, lest the cross be emptied of its purpose. Think about that. 
Contrition accompanied by a change of direction is the prerequisite to restoration. Let me say that again. Contrition, a godly sorrow, and I'm sorry, I get it, accompanied by a change of direction, and I'm going to turn away from that now, is the prerequisite to restoration. Lest we gut the gospel of Jesus Christ. Sin necessitated the cross. To blatantly sin after we've come to Christ, Paul later says, is to crucify Jesus all over again. Repentance is required for restoration. Sin must be taken seriously by and in the church. Verse 6. You guys with me? Just checking. He says, your boasting is not good. And you guys are all about this, and that's horrible. He says, don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeasts so that you may be a new batch without yeast. Yeast is used as a representation or a symbol for sin in the Scripture. As you really are, he says. For Christ, our Passover lamb, he's speaking to the Jews who are in the the congregation in Corinth right now. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival of unleavened bread, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. So what's he doing? Paul's reminding them of the nature of sin here. How sin operates. How it moves. And he's saying essentially that sin is infectious. It's infectious. It spreads rapidly. It knows no borders. It's like the coronavirus that we're watching right now as you see the map just lighting up. And if extreme measures are not taken, it will destroy lives. Do you believe that? Man, we better believe it. You see it all around you every day. You see it in your family. You see it in your own life. This is a truth that is absolutely undeniable. Throughout Scripture, yeast is used as a symbol for sin. And it gives us insight into how sin operates. How many of you have made bread before? Your bread bakers. Man, a lot of folks. More people than have seen church discipline. (laughs) I love that. Yeast is an active ingredient, okay? It's alive. It's an active fungus that spreads rapidly under the right conditions. And it makes things look more substantial than they are. The bread rises because of the gases that the yeast produces, and it creates hot air. But there is nothing solid beneath the surface. And Paul is saying, in essence, that we don't want the church to be like that. Puffed up on the outside, but nothing substantial underneath. And he reminds us that Jesus died to remove the yeast, to remove the sin that infects the body. He says, get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Remember how he opened this letter? 
telling the Corinthians who they were in Christ and all they had in Christ. And now he's just reiterating that. He says, be who you are, the righteousness of Christ. He says, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Paul Paul takes the Jews that were present there back to the Passover and he reminds them that after the lamb was sacrificed to commemorate their freedom from bondage in Egypt that they were to remove all the yeast, all the leaven from the camp. That's the Feast of Unleavened Bread because that leaven was a symbol of their oppression in Egypt. And sin is a symbol, not just a symbol. Sin is the reality of our enslavement and our oppression as followers of Jesus Christ. It's what we've come out of. It's our Egypt. Why would we go back? And after the Passover was celebrated, if you're familiar with the feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to begin. And that's where the Israelites would go throughout their camp searching for and removing all the leaven, all the yeast. What a picture. Jesus is our permanent Passover lamb. And following his sacrifice, we are to search for and remove the sin from our lives and from the life of the church. That's what Paul's saying here. We don't turn a blind eye to or tolerate blatant sin in the body of Christ. You say, wow, Phil, I just came for the music. Thankfully, there's more to it than that. Verse 9, we're moving to a close here. Paul says, I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world. Don't miss this. He said, I'm not talking about the people of this world. This is where Christians get it backwards. He said, I'm not telling you not to associate with people in this world who are immoral or the greedy, the swindlers, or the idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. They don't know any better is what Paul is saying. He says, but now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, a believer. This is not about us judging the world. This is about our camp. Who is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler. With such such a man do not even eat, he says. He goes on to say, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Listen to this. What business is it of ours as followers of Christ to judge those outside the church? Are we not to judge those inside? Not in a judgy, haughty kind of thing, which is the perspective that we have. It's to hold one another accountable to a reasonable standard of holiness. That's how we judge each other. He says, God will judge those outside. Let him sort that out. That's his job. But for you, expel the wicked man from among you. You know, the interesting thing here is that as Christians, we spend a lot of time judging the world around us whether it's Super Bowl halftime shows, celebrities, politics, personalities, whatever it is. 
Paul gives us permission to judge, but not to judge the world. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn the world, but to save it. Paul says, what business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Paul's challenging us to be the church, to stand for something. We've got to stand for something or we'll fall for anything. And that's what's happening. Slippery slope. To hold one another accountable is what he's saying here, to a reasonable standard of holiness. Not to create a spiritual hierarchy where one is above the other, but to lock arms together in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The question is, does that work? Does it work? If we were to exercise church discipline here in the same way Paul did, does it work? I've seen it work. And the reality is, if we move on to Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it evidently worked in this case. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 2. He said, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient for him. So he's reflecting back on this situation in the second letter. Now instead, instead of banishing him, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So evidently he came to a place of repentance through this action that God has ordained for the church. We've got to trust God's process and not measure it by the world's ways. He says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. And when it comes to removing sin in the camp, you know, I want to challenge you this morning. <laughs> I challenge myself. Start with your own heart. Not about everybody else. It's about my heart. It's about your heart. Start with your own heart as we move into this season of Lent. As we reflect on the cross. As we reflect on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that has secured our forgiveness and restored us for all eternity to the Father. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit even now would impress our hearts individually. That, Lord, you would reveal the leaven within, the yeast, Father, that moves so rapidly through our own lives. And, Lord, help us to invite you into those dark places to remove that yeast, to remove that sin in only a way that you can when the light of Christ is shined into our lives. Help us, Lord, not to judge the world around us, but to hold one another accountable as fellow followers of Jesus Christ to a reasonable degree of holiness. Lord, help us to be the church in the midst of a world that may even mock us, that, 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 that doesn't understand, that, that, that looks at the cross as foolishness. But help us to be willing, as Paul said, to be fools for Christ in the midst of this world 
that we live in. And I pray that prayer in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Mm-hmm.